0: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Emergency Docs. As a general disclaimer, please keep in mind this podcast does not constitute medical advice, but is purely for the purposes of education. I'm Dr. R.
1: And I'm Dr. Y. For anyone who may not need the information in this episode, we envy you. Though pretty much everyone is exposed to cold at some point, even in Southern California. It's likely that almost everyone has or will experience some sort of cold weather. And just like extreme heat, extreme cold poses dangers of its own. So whether you have one cold winter day a year or experience plunging temperatures and heavy snowfall for several months of the year, this episode will have valuable information on cold weather injuries, risk factors, and preventative measures to keep you, your loved ones, and even the occasional stranger safe.
0: I like to think that we can all agree that cold weather isn't the greatest, but I know there are people out there who love the cold. Regardless of how you feel, extreme cold exposure has many physiological repercussions. The body works within a relatively fixed range of temperatures, usually around 98 degrees Fahrenheit. When the internal body temperature drops below 98 degrees Fahrenheit, the chemical reactions that allow cellular metabolism to maintain a constant body temperature slow down or at very low temperatures can stop altogether. Because cellular metabolism is a complex sequence of reactions that maintain life, disruptions will obviously cause serious complications.
1: Yeah. A lot of organs, specifically the heart and the brain, become sluggish and may stop working when hypothermic. When body tissues freeze, it causes serious damage. Ice crystals form within tissue cells and can break the cells apart as the ice crystals form and expand. Rubbing the tissues can actually increase cell damage due to the crystals. Intracellular fluid, basically just the fluid inside your cells, may freeze which then allows extracellular fluid or the fluid outside the cells into the cells. This can cause a bunch of different problems because the salt and ion content inside and outside the cells is different. When the gradients and barriers break down so does the tissue. As a result the cells may rupture because of endosmosis or tears from ice crystals. Eventually these ice crystals melt which simply results in an influx of salts in the tissues that damage membranes again leading to cell destruction.
0: Freezing tissue obviously has dire consequences. Because of the salt content in the body, tissue freezes below 28 degrees Fahrenheit. Because adding salts to solutions generally lowers the temperature at which a solution freezes. This is part of why salt helps prevent ice on roads. While these salts provide some protection from freezing temperatures, a lot of regions experience multiple months of the year with temperatures below 28 Fahrenheit. In these really cold environments, distal areas like fingers and toes are most susceptible to the tissue damage.
1: Cold weather related injuries vary a lot by geographical location, with more cases obviously occurring in areas with cooler climates. Within the general population, there are also subgroups that are more susceptible to cold injuries, Many of these subgroups are at a greater risk because they are more likely to have prolonged exposure to the cold, or they have a decreased ability to compensate for lower temperatures.
0: As with heat injuries, age is one factor. Infants have a high ratio of body surface to mass, which makes them more susceptible to fast heat transfer. On the other hand of the spectrum, the elderly have a decreased capacity for metabolic heat production, meaning a decreased capacity to generate their own body heat through their own metabolism as well as through vasoconstriction, where your blood vessels get smaller to retain heat. These characteristics prevent the elderly from maintaining their body temperature as well as other adults and makes them less able to combat the cold. In both of these cases, the very young and the very old, the individuals have a decreased ability to maintain a normal body temperature when placed in a dangerously cold environment.
1: An individual's physical well-being is an important risk factor for cold injuries as well. The balance of muscle and fat someone has plays a large role in compensation for cold temperatures. To compare a human to a house, your fat is your insulation. Too little fatty tissue decreases the level of insulation needed to stay warm. Additionally, malnutrition and physical exertion can also decrease the fuel available for heat generation, ultimately increasing one's vulnerability to cold injuries.
0: Also in the context of well-being, there are a multitude of pre-existing conditions that increase risk to cold injury. Many of these conditions, such as hypothyroidism, adrenal insufficiency, and hyperglycemia, involve the endocrine system and can affect metabolic heat production or your body's ability to generate heat. Other underlying conditions that may predispose one to cold injury include peripheral vascular disease or diabetic neuropathy, which can impair a person's ability to feel their hands and feet or may lead to dangerously decreased blood flow to the hands and feet in low temperatures.
1: A person's ability to feel or tolerate temperatures can be affected by alcohol and illicit drugs as well. Alcohol dulls that awareness of cold temperatures and impairs judgment, but it also inhibits the ability to shiver, a mechanism which is used to generate heat, and causes cutaneous vasodilation, which means your blood vessels near the surface of your skin widen and dilate, which counteracts your thermoregulatory responses to warm up. In the general public, alcohol is one of the leading factors that increase frostbite risk. A 2013 military clinical review study of frostbite noted that alcohol consumption was involved with 46% of frostbitten patients.
0: Yikes, that is a lot. Please drink responsibly. A person's work or hobbies may also increase risk for cold injury. People who spend prolonged periods of time outdoors in cold climates are, of course, at greater risk. Cold injuries are common and well-documented within military personnel. Additionally, hikers, hunters, and outdoor construction workers are at higher risk. Another demographic that frequently experiences environment-related illness or injury is the homeless. Because of their continual exposure to the elements, they're at greater risk than most.
1: The homeless and those living in poverty are definitely at greater risk. Most Americans are able to alter the environment inside their homes to counteract bad weather conditions outside. Unfortunately, if you live in a tent, a poorly constructed home, or a home without heating or air conditioning, you can't change your environment when it becomes uncomfortable. Socioeconomic standing plays a role in the ability to seek safe shelter and medical attention. A comprehensive study that was done in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health evaluated factors related to mortality and winter conditions across 14 European countries, The journal reported that of the multiple factors influencing increased winter mortality, socioeconomic factors were highly associated with that increased mortality rate.
0: For those living in impoverished conditions, low housing standards increase the risk of temperature-related complications because of insufficient heating systems and thermal inefficiency in the homes. Houses in impoverished communities are often lacking in the necessary wall, roof, and floor insulation. They also may have limited or no electricity to effectively combat severe outdoor environments.
1: While these are some predisposing factors that can increase the risk of cold injuries, it should be clear that cold weather is capable of causing injuries to anyone who is exposed to it long enough.
0: Agreed. Cold injuries can be divided into two categories, the first being localized to a body part, otherwise called peripheral cold injuries, And the second is systemic injury due to the generalized cooling of the entire body known as systemic hypothermia.
1: Now, similar to heat injuries, peripheral cold injuries occur on a spectrum of severity. On the bottom of that spectrum is frostnip. Frostnip generally occurs on structures like the nose, ears, hands, or feet, and looks like a waxy, pale skin where the top layer feels hard. Frostnip isn't considered a severe condition and is generally reversible.
0: There's another division of classification within the peripheral injuries being freezing and non-freezing injuries. The non-freezing injuries tend to heal better and have fewer complications. So while the next injury on the spectrum, Chilblains, is more severe than frostnip, it's still a non-freezing injury. Chilblains, also referred to as erythema perneo, is a superficial tissue injury that's caused by prolonged exposure to temperatures above freezing with high humidity and high winds. Symptoms of Chilblains include erythema, which basically just means redness of the skin, itching, inflammation, possible blistering, and in severe cases, ulceration. Typically, there's damage to peripheral capillary beds, and it can cause permanent changes to the skin, such as return of the redness and itching when the body part is exposed to cold in the future. It's important to avoid triggers like cold to prevent the return of these symptoms.
1: Another non-freezing but more severe injury is trench foot. When feet are immersed in cool to cold water, even water as warm as 60 degrees Fahrenheit, for extended periods of time, the nerves and blood vessels may become damaged. Because wet feet lose heat 25 times faster than dry feet, vasoconstriction decreases the blood flow to wet feet in order to prevent heat loss. Of course, when skin tissues are not receiving blood flow and thus oxygen, the tissue begins to build up toxic products and then dies. The skin will become reddened with numbness and tingling pain, it will itch, then become pale and mottled, and eventually a discolored dark purple-gray-blue. Now, the progression of this cold injury has three stages, and if not recognized and treated by the third stage, the tissue will die and slough off, leaving potentially severe permanent damage.
0: Yeah, I've seen cases of this even in Southern California. The patient is usually a homeless person who's been exposed to the rain and didn't change their socks or shoes so their feet stay wet and cold, which then causes the damage Dr. Y just discussed. In any case, protective clothing is a simple preventative measure to a lot of these injuries. I would hope everyone is wearing socks and shoes or boots if you can in the winter, but one part of the body that is not regularly protected in the winter months is the eyes. Cold weather and winter elements can do some damage to the eyes for sure. Snow blindness, which is sort of like a sunburn to the eyes, is a non-freezing injury that can result from the reflection of the sun off of the snow. It can also be caused by long-term exposure to bright light, like from welding, or recently I saw a case where a person had been on a boating trip for a few days and didn't wear sunglasses. Eyes will feel dry, irritated, gritty, and painful when you blink. Moral of the story, don't forget to wear your sunglasses in the winter as well. Along with sun protection, glasses, or better yet goggles, can be used for cold wind protection. Without them, there's also a risk of freezing corneas. While frozen corneas are rather uncommon, it's always best to prevent an injury in the first place.
1: Yeah, a frozen eye is definitely not something you want. Now anything that freezes definitely will have issues, which is why the worst localized cold injury on the spectrum is frostbite, which results from the freezing of multiple skin layers. In general, frostbite appears white and has a wooden feel to it, with complete numbness. Several days later, after rewarming, frostbite can be categorized into four degrees of severity. First degree is associated with mild itching and edema, meaning swelling of the tissue, but no blistering or peeling of the skin. Second degree is characterized by blistering and desquamation, or peeling and sloughing of the skin. Third degree is associated with necrosis, or death of the skin and subcutaneous tissues with ulceration. And fourth degree is the destruction of connective tissues and bone with gangrene. Now, secondary infections and non-freezing injuries are commonly associated with frostbite, especially if the skin cycles from freezing to rewarming.
0: While localized injuries can be pretty severe, sometimes resulting in complete destruction of the injured area, systemic hypothermia can kill. Hypothermia is the decrease in core body temperature, where normal muscle and cerebral function becomes impaired. This decrease in core temperature is a result of an individual's basic metabolic rate decreasing from exposure to the cold. Like frostbite, hypothermia can be categorized into three levels of severity, mild, moderate, and severe. Classically, hypothermia is described as a core temperature below 95 degrees Fahrenheit. A person with mild hypothermia will have a core temperature, which can be normal, to around about 91 degrees Fahrenheit. The person might have apathy toward their situation or difficulty with some movement and can have vasoconstriction of peripheral blood vessels leading to pallor or sort of a lightening of the skin and tissue. People with moderate hypothermia will have a core temperature of 91 degrees Fahrenheit to the low 80s Fahrenheit. Moderate hypothermia is characterized by dazed consciousness and irrational behavior, loss of fine motor coordination, slurred speech, and decreased shivering. A prime example of irrational behavior is seen in mountain climbers Later staged hypothermic climbers might engage in something called paradoxical undressing, where they sort of take their clothes off despite their hypothermia because they feel irrationally hot in their bundled and heavy mountain gear. Severe hypothermia is characterized by a core body temperature less than 82.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Individuals with severe hypothermia may have heart arrhythmias, decreased breathing and oxygen consumption, low blood pressure, and bradycardia or low heart rate, losses of reflexes, and loss of voluntary motion. The body stops shivering so that it can conserve glucose. The lowest recorded core temperature for an accidentally hypothermic adult was 56.8 degrees Fahrenheit, or 13.7 degrees Celsius, just about half of the normal.
1: Yeah, that's cool. Now, there's an old adage we have in the emergency department. A patient isn't dead until they are warm and dead. Now, basically, this essentially means we code and treat the patient until they are warm enough that they should have basal levels of metabolic functioning. There are mechanisms to combat the cold and maintain safe body temperature, but they are not nearly strong enough to keep you safe in many types of extreme conditions. These mechanisms include shivering, peripheral vasoconstriction, and behavioral responses such as putting on more clothes or increasing activity. However, if the body drops below 86 degrees Fahrenheit, the shivering mechanisms cannot warm the body back up. And if first aid or medical treatment is not sought and the body drops to below about 68 degrees Fahrenheit, cardiac standstill typically occurs, which causes death.
0: The basic principles for first aid are pretty simple. Conserve body heat and replace the body fuel. These two simple things can make a big difference and allow the natural mechanisms we just mentioned to occur. If a person is shivering, they should be able to warm themselves up at a rate of 2 degrees Celsius an hour. Obviously, this isn't great, but if that heat can be conserved, it can certainly make a difference until the person can get more definitive care.
1: Any source of heat can make a huge difference until trained medical professionals are able to implement rewarming techniques. For chillblains, start by trying to conserve any heat, like Dr. R said. Next, keep blisters and ulcers covered and avoid scratching any of the affected areas. When dealing with trench foot, it's important to dry the feet, remove any and all shoes and wet socks, and keep the individual from walking on their feet as it can cause accelerated tissue damage. For frostbite victims, get them into a warm room as soon as possible. Do not walk on, rub, or massage affected areas, and do not use heating pads, stoves, fireplaces, etc. to rewarm. Frostbitten areas are numb and can burn easily. The best thing to do is put the affected areas into warm, not hot, water. The temperature should be comfortable to the touch for unaffected areas. Rewarming can be a painful process. It is important to not rewarm affected body parts if they might freeze again. This will just cause further damage. Hypothermia is also a very urgent matter. Victims should be moved to a warm room or shelter and wet clothes should be removed. The body should be warmed by any means possible, for example, with an electric blanket, warm blankets, or skin-to-skin contact. Warm beverages can be given to increase internal body temperature, but never give alcoholic beverages, and never attempt to give any beverage to an unconscious person.
0: The biggest part of treatment for hypothermic patients is rewarming their core body temperature. There are various methods of doing this. For a lot of mild hypothermia cases, if the victim was previously healthy, Passive external rewarming works. Passive external rewarming means that the person is covered with dry, insulating material in a warm environment so they stop losing heat and can rewarm. Body temperature should increase at a rate of about 0.5 to 2 degrees Celsius per hour. This method is only possible because the person's core temperatures aren't too low and therefore can cause fewer complications. Active methods of rewarming are helpful for any patient, but absolutely necessary when core temperatures are below 89.5 degrees Fahrenheit. This method is the direct transfer of exogenous heat to a patient and can be done externally or internally. External transfers include forced air methods, circulating hot air through a blanket or warm water immersion. Forced air methods are most common in the emergency department. Core rewarming can also be done through multiple different techniques. Airway rewarming is one, where heat is exchanged through the respiratory tract by humidified oxygen. This method helps reduce respiratory heat loss. Another method is through heated infusions. Preheated IV fluids or blood can provide heat to the body quickly, and this method also is pretty common for hospital treatment. Lastly, GI and mediastinal irrigation methods can be effective, but are definitely more invasive. GI irrigation and rewarming is the process of sending fluids through a tube that flush through the GI tract, while mediastinal irrigation is accomplished through tubes inserted into the chest. All of these methods have pros and cons, but each of them is helpful in the rewarming process.
1: While well, all of that makes cold injuries sound like a very big deal, which they are serious, it should be understood that they are also pretty preventable. Taking simple measures before and during exposure to cold temperatures can practically eliminate the risk of cold injuries.
0: The first step is to just understand the risk factors and injuries themselves. Pay attention to the temperature, wind chill, and water temperature. Dress appropriately for those conditions. If you or your kids are swimming in cool water, take breaks to warm up on the shore, the patio, or in the boat change out of wet clothing. A lot of small things can make a big difference.
1: Pretty basic, but true. Preparing for the environment is obviously important. In a survey-based study, mountaineers identified inappropriate clothing, lack or incorrect use of equipment, and a lack of knowledge on cold preparation as the top three reasons for developing frostbite. Good layering technique is important, as you are able to adjust clothing to keep from being cold, but equally crucial is not getting so hot that you sweat, which increases cold injury risk because then you have wet clothing on your skin. Because distal body parts like hands and feet are most commonly affected by localized cold injuries, hats and gloves are needed just as much as coats and pants. Making sure hats, gloves, and boots fit appropriately is important so that blood flow is not restricted, which again can increase cold injury risk.
0: Bundle up out there. Proper nutrition is also needed to prevent cold injuries. Having enough calories for the body to burn to keep warm throughout the day or your outdoor activity is important. Plus, it gives you an excuse to eat more snacks.
1: Finally, individual awareness can prevent cold injuries. You know when your fingers are feeling a tad numb or your nose is getting a bit cold. Recognize this and find a warm location to get out of the cold. Always listen to your body.
0: And that's it for us today. As always, we would love to hear from you. Check out our website at theemergencydocs.com or contact us through Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. If you like what you hear, consider donating on our website at theemergencydocs.com. Wherever you experience your winters, however cold, we hope you stay safe and stay warm.